Welcome back to Will Wright Catholic Podcast. Today we're looking at session three of five of Praying the Mass, a series on the Holy Mass about how you and I can enter more deeply into the sacred mysteries and be able to pray the Mass better by knowing what's going on, by knowing what's being said, the different gestures, signs, symbols, and the like. So today we're looking at the mystical body of Christ and the liturgy of the Word. Now, if you haven't listened to session one on what is the sacred liturgy and session two on the introductory rites and the mass, when, where, and who, I highly recommend that you go back and check those out first because this session does build on those last two preceding sessions. And uh, like I said, this there are five sessions in total. And so next week, we'll be looking at the liturgy of the Eucharist. And then finally, on the fifth week, we'll be looking at the concluding rites, and I'll be making some uh, concluding remarks to, to wrap up these sessions. I hope that you've been enjoying them, and uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. If you haven't already, uh, please go to willwritecatholic.com and subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode or an article that comes out on the Substack side of things or on the podcast. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to follow the channel and leave a rating or a review. That helps a lot with the algorithms. Uh, Same thing on Spotify, if that's where you're listening. I'd really appreciate it. And also, please uh, feel free to share this with your friends and family if you think that it would be a blessing to them. And based on what I'm going to share today, I know it will be. Uh, And again, this isn't anything special that I'm doing. I, uh, I'm just sharing with you what the Mass is from the mind and heart of the church. And we're just skimming the surface. There's so much more. And so without further ado, let's dive into today on the mystical body of Christ. And we're also going to be talking about full conscious and active participation in the liturgy and the liturgy of the word. So let's begin. So over the last couple of weeks, we've learned what the sacred liturgy is, what it's for, and we looked a bit more intently at sacred music and the introductory rites of the Mass. And today we're looking at the liturgy of the Word, but I want to begin with a part two of our exploration of sacred music. And as we looked at last week, music is integral to the sacred liturgy, so it's important for us to know the mind and heart of the church on the subject. And then we're going to take a close look at one of the most important theological ideas of this entire series, the mystical body of Christ. So let's begin first with a quick look at the difference between a sacrament and a sacramental. This will be an exceptionally brief explanation, um, but I I didn't want to take it for granted that the difference is evident to everybody listening. So a sacrament is one of the seven sacraments instituted by Jesus Christ as an outward sign of God's inward grace. The sacraments actually make present in a very real way what is being symbolized. So baptism isn't merely a bath. It causes a real change in us. The Eucharist is not merely a symbol. It's actually Jesus' body and blood. Now sacramentals, on the other hand, like holy water and the rosary and blessed salt and the sign of the cross and medals and all these things, crucifixes, they don't have any intrinsic power. These aren't talismans or magic, but they simply dispose our hearts and minds and souls to God's grace. In other words, they open us up to God's supernatural aid and his love. 
All right. So with that said, let's 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 dive into today. So I want to begin with um, full conscious actual participation. Intimately related to music, let us begin by looking at this phrase from the Second Vatican Council. In Vatican II's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Council Fathers write this. They say, Mother Church earnestly desires that all of the faithful should be led to that fully conscious and active participation in liturgical celebrations, which is demanded by the very nature of the liturgy. Such participation by the Christian people as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a redeemed people, is their right and duty by the reason of their baptism. In the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. Now, this notion of full conscious and active participation has been understood and misunderstood since the 1960s. And there's a helpful distinction in the official text of the document. Of course, this constitution was promulgated in Latin, not in English. And the Latin word used for active is actuosa. Now, while actuosa does mean active, busy, or energetic in Latin, uh, classically speaking, this is not the meaning of the church's document. Right? If, we, if we dig a bit deeper into the notion of active, we arrive at the notion of active as in active rather than passive. And we'll arrive eventually at actively proceeding rather than dormant. And based on liturgical documents before and after the council, the true meaning of actuosa is better rendered as actual rather than active. Now, why do I think this matters? Well, if we stick to the idea of being busy or externally energetic, then we're missing the boat. Right? Full conscious and actual participation in the sacred liturgy comes from the disposition of the heart, which bears fruit in external ways through singing and saying the responses, sitting, standing, kneeling, beating one's breast, making the sign of the cross, and so forth. Full, conscious, and active participation does not mean that every member of the laity needs to busy themselves with fulfilling some role. And as we'll see in a few minutes, speaking about the mystical body of Christ, our role as laity differs in degree from that of the priest. The priest is offering the Mass in persona Christi Capitis, that is, in the person of Christ, head of his body. The priest offers the holy sacrifice at his hands, and we, the people, offer the Mass as members of the body of Christ. And we do this by praying, singing, and focusing our mind, heart, and soul, and strength on the liturgical action. Pope Francis said this in a homily in 2013, uh, 10 years ago, in the beginning of his pontificate. He said, Active and conscious participation in the liturgy constitutes being able to enter deeply into the mystery of God made present in the Eucharist, thanks in particular to the religious silence and musicality of language with which the Lord speaks to us. And so liturgical activity is not a jamboree. It's not a festival. It's a sacred foretaste of the heavenly banquet. Above all, it's the presentation once more of the one sacrifice of the cross in an un unbloody manner. This is the great mystery that we looked at in session one. In our actual participation as a member of the body of Christ, 
allows us to enter this sacred reality. Now, as far as singing goes, as Catholics, we're not called to sing at Mass. We're called to sing the Mass. We're not spectators at Mass. We're called to offer our own personhood, body and soul, in the celebration of the sacred mysteries. And so the parts of the Mass which are sung consist of the ordinary, the propers, and the orations and dialogues. The ordinary are the parts of the Mass that are the same every Sunday, with the exception of Advent and Lent. These would be the Kyrie in Greek, uh, the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Mysterium Fidei, uh, and the Agnus Dei. And the Creed, or the Credo, can also be sung. These parts are ordinarily for the congregation or a choir, and these are beautifully done with the music which receives pride of place in the Roman liturgy, Gregorian chant, which is what the Second Vatican Council uh, asked us for, as we looked at last week. Now, the propers consist of five parts in two sets. The first set is the entrance antiphon, the offertory antiphon, and the communion antiphon. And the second set is the responsorial psalm and the gospel act proclamation with its verse. Each of the propers have accompanying refrains and verses, and these are often done antiphonally with the cantor or choir singing the refrain, the congregation repeating the refrain, and then the cantor or choir singing the verses. And just as the first and second reading in the gospel, these are propers selected by the church for each Sunday mass of the year and for every major feast or solemnity. These are to be sung when possible as they are part of the mass. Unfortunately, this integral practice has been neglected in the church for many years. Uh, and I'll go into detail a bit later about why liturgical chant is more appropriate and efficacious for the mass than a hymn or a song. And then finally, orations and dialogues. The orations and dialogues are the texts of the collects and other presidential prayers and those in which the celebrant and the people address each other. For example, the greeting and its response, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Musical notations for these dialogues are provided in the Missal and uh, should be used, according to Archbishop Sample in his pastoral letter, uh, which we began looking at last week. And so let's look at hymns, hymns at the Mass. Hymns in the mind of the Church belong primarily in the Liturgy of the Hours, also called the Divine Office or the Breviary. And this custom of singing hymns at Mass arose during the Low Mass of the extraordinary form of the Latin Mass when the priest was speaking in an inaudible voice praying in Latin. The congregation would sing vernacular devotional hymns during these silent prayers, during certain moments of the Mass. And more on why hymns are devotional rather than liturgical in a moment. I think that's an important distinction. So though hymn singing at low mass was the case historically, the mind of the church is to sing, as we covered, the ordinary, the propers, and the orations and dialogues. Hymn singing at mass is not envisioned in the documents of the Second Vatican Council or any subsequent magisterial documents. The only exception is the allowance of a hymn of praise after the distribution of Holy Communion, prior to the prayer after communion. Now, there is a, an option, right? A, 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 a third or fourth or fifth preference would be an or another suitable hymn or another suitable song that is in place of the chants, in place of the, the propers. But again, the propers are what the church is envisioning. 
the normative practice of music at mass that we do now was not envisioned by the church. It was set in many ways over the last decades by large music publishers, which gave us the, uh, as, as music ministers lovingly call it, uh, the four hymn sandwich, right? The processional, the offertory, the communion hymns, and then usually a recessional hymn. And the recessional, by the way, is not in the missal or any of the church's music documents. It's simply tacked on to give a sense of closure. However, for many centuries after Sunday Mass, it was customary to sing antiphons in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And these four antiphons were done seasonally. Uh, that would be the Ave Regina Caelorum, the Salve Regina, the Regina Caeli, and the uh, Alma Redemptoris Mater. So hymns are devotional by nature. And by devotional, I mean that they're written by men and women and arise from the human heart up to God. And that's certainly not a bad thing. It's a very good thing, right? It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But liturgical music, on the other hand, is handed down by tradition directly from Scripture. It's not paraphrased. And in this way, liturgical chants are the written word of God, which speaks to our hearts, comes to us from above, from God. And we make these words our own as we sing them. By chanting, really, we're conforming ourselves to the word of God rather than giving God our word, as beautiful a gift as that can be. And there's a time and a place for all these things, right? In a, in a rosary prayer group, praying Marian devotional songs is appropriate. In the liturgy of the hours, devotional hymns are always appropriate and even called for. During praise and worship, devotional songs are our expression of our faith in God, our hope in him, and our love of him. However, there's something distinct and set apart, something utterly universal, something transcendent about the words of Christ coming down into our human existence, especially in the context of the Mass. When we take in these words, they form us more into Christ, and we glorify God. Remember what sacred scripture says, my word does not return to me void. And so this is the action of the liturgy made flesh. The Son eternally offers himself to the Father in the Spirit. And as members of the body of Christ, this is what we are participating in when we do liturgical singing and when we sing the Mass. And the church gives us, clear, gives us a clear vision of what has preference in terms of instrumentation as well. I don't want to spend a long time on this, but I think it's worth mentioning. The Second Vatican Council says this in paragraph 120 of Sacrosanctum Concilium. In the Latin church, uh, actually, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. In the Eastern churches, a lot of the Eastern churches, the Byzantine rites, there are no instruments. Only the voice is heard. Only the voice chants. And so there aren't any instruments. The, the idea of using a guitar during the divine liturgy or drums or organ or piano would just be completely inappropriate. And so anyway, Sacrosanctum Concilium in paragraph 120 is speaking directly to the Latin rite of the church. So I just wanted to make that clarification before we go on. In the Latin church, the pipe organ is to be held in high esteem. For it is the traditional musical instrument which adds a wonderful splendor to the church's ceremonies and powerfully lifts up man's mind to God and to higher things. 
Other instruments may be admitted only on condition that the instruments are suitable or can be made suitable for sacred use, accord, accord with the dignity of the temple, and truly contribute to the edification of the faithful. So when it comes to instruments at Mass, the question we always want to keep in mind is, does this serve to facilitate praying and singing the Mass? Remember, it's not singing at the Mass, it's singing the Mass. Is it liturgical? Does it conform to the liturgical law and the liturgical guidelines? Does it elevate or distract from what Christ himself is doing? As an aside, pre-recorded music is forbidden to be used in liturgy by liturgical law. And ideally, musicians should not be particularly visually prominent. Choir lofts are ideal, um, but may not be possible given your church's architecture. It is simple, always, uh, simply always the standard that musicians at Mass should add to the solemnity of the occasion and never distract or detract. And solemnity is usually joyful. Solemn does not need to mean somber, unless the liturgical occasion calls for it. Thinking here, of course, of Lent, or especially of Ash Wednesday or Good Friday, those would be solemn and somber. Um, But solemnity, every single Sunday, can be very joyful, very exuberant. Um, But that doesn't necessarily have to mean some sort of jamboree or or loud um, frenetic activity. Because it's also important to retain silence. God is manifest not only in the beauty of liturgical singing, but also in the powerful silence in which we can actually hear his still small voice. There's a rhythm to the sacred liturgy which must not be rushed or unduly prolonged by the music. Silence fosters communication with God. It allows for reflection and meditation. As St. John Paul II put it in 1998, he said, Active participation certainly means that in gesture, word, song, and service, all the members of the community take part in an act of worship, which is anything but inert or passive. Yet active participation does not preclude the active active passivity of silence, stillness, and listening. Indeed, it demands it. Worshippers are not passive, for instance, when listening to the readings or the homily or following the prayers of the celebrant and the chants and the music of the liturgy. These are experiences of silence and stillness, but they're in their own way profoundly active. In a culture which neither favors nor fosters meditative quiet, the art of interior listening is learned only with difficulty. Here we see how the liturgy, though it must always be properly enculturated, must also be countercultural. And so really in all things, pastors and musicians really ought to familiarize themselves with the documents of the church's magisterium on sacred music and liturgy. Special care should be given to Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, Trale Solicitudini by Pope Pius X, uh, the USCCB's document, Sing to the Lord, uh, the document, Musicae Sacrae, uh, Mediator Dei by uh, Pope Pius XII. There's a lot to take in. And these beautiful, instructive, and ecclesiastical law documents are not emphasized enough, and they really ought to be. Uh, and so I think it's worth really diving into those. And so that's the end of uh, part two, really, of sacred music. There's more to say, but I think that gives us the a, a fuller picture, anyway, of kind of how sacred music fits into 
sacred liturgy, right? We don't pray, we don't sing at Mass. We sing the Mass. So the mystical body of Christ, Mystici Corpus in Latin, a full year before the invasion of Normandy by Allied forces during World War II, in June of 1943, Pope Pius XII issued an encyclical letter entitled Mystici Corpus Christi. This encyclical really is nothing new in Catholic teaching, but it was an affirmation of the identity of the church as the mystical body of Christ. And this might seem like an odd topic to write about during such cataclysm in Europe, but the Pope thought it was important for people to understand the church. Most especially during this time and any time, the church is called to share Christ with the world and make the invisible visible. The church is called to be a source of love, faith, and hope in a beleaguered world. And during the war, there was also widespread forced conversions of Jews to Christianity by anti-Semites. And the Pope wanted to give a forceful condemnation of this practice. In Christianity, unlike some other major world religions, forced conversions are out of the question. Conversion to Christianity and thus incorporation into the mystical body of Christ must be voluntary, based on faith, hope, and love, not involuntary compulsion. As St. John Paul II said so well, the faith is always proposed, not imposed. Pope Pius XII states clearly that the church is a body, and it must, as he says, be an unbroken unity. According to those words of Paul, though many, we are one body in Christ. However, this mystical body is also visible. With a multiplicity of members of all different walks of life, the church is united in Christ, who is the head. This reality is both visible and invisible, both human and divine. And this encyclical picks up on the teachings of St. Paul on the body of Christ, the church, and laid the groundwork of a much lengthier discussion during the Second Vatican Council. The Constitution Concerning the Church from Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, A Light to the Nations, further develops much of what the pontiff wrote in 1943. And we must realize that if the church is a body, then it's an organism. As St. John Henry Newman said, the church is not an organization, it is an organism. And of course, Jesus is the head of this body. Without the head, we can do nothing. But the head does not choose to operate in the world without the use of the body. The church is composed of head and members, and it has a means for people to enter the body by the power of the Holy Spirit. It also has an internal means of subsistence, which is the Holy Eucharist. It has a metabolism, so to speak. It has a means to grow, mature, and prosper in the life of grace, especially the sacramental life. And the reason that the mystical body of Christ is called mystical is because this reality is a mystery. Now, a mystery is not something unknowable. A mystery in the church is something which is revealed by God, but is not readily understandable by human reason alone. The vital principle of the church, what gives it life, which gives it vitality, is Jesus Christ himself. He is fully God and fully man. This is a great mystery, but it's true. The Son of God took on flesh, sharing in our humanity, though he remains fully the second person of the Blessed Trinity. This is a great mystery. The Holy Trinity truly is a, is a great mystery. By speaking of the mystical body of Christ, what are we doing? We're distinguishing it from the physical body of Christ. We also distinguish the mystical body of Christ from a natural body. 
Though we've spoken about how the mystical body of Christ is organized like a natural body, it's really a supernatural reality. It's above nature. And this must be the case because the church is caught up in the mystery of God himself. And the church is not a human invention, right? The church is the action of Almighty God built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, directed to the Father in the power and working of the Holy Spirit, right? Really, we could say that the church is the offering of the Son to the Father in the Spirit. <laughs> I'm making sort of a joke. That's what I've been defining the Mass as, right? But really, that also is the definition of the church. It's also the definition of the Trinity. Uh, it really permeates all layers of, um, of reality, the bonds of divine charity are what bind us together. And so the church is invisible and visible. God moves first and then we respond. Knowing and loving us before time began, God sent his son to gather us. And so as Pope Pius Twelfth writes in Mystici Corpus, Now the only begotten son of God embraced us in his infinite knowledge and undying love even before the world began. In that he might give a visible and exceedingly beautiful expression to this love, he assumed our nature in hypostatic union. And what the Pope is pointing out here is the enfleshment of the God-man is the point of reference for the church. Through the, though the church appears visibly and seems to be a human institution, it was first the action of God and is sustained by him. Just as Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, so too the church is fully divine and fully human. And so we can ask next, who comprises this church? Well, first, what is a priest? Now, the popular definition of a priest is given as an ordained person with the authority to perform certain rites and administer certain sacraments. Properly speaking, however, a priest is one who offers sacrifice. This is what a priest is. Is. This is what a priest does. This is who a priest is. A priest is handed over his life to be at the service of Jesus Christ and to pour himself out in his service. And truly, there's only one priest with a capital P, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest, and every ordained man simply takes part in that one priesthood to varying degrees. For example, every baptized person shares in the priesthood of Christ in a general way, whereas deacons, priests, and bishops participate in the priesthood of Christ in particular and ever greater degrees. In a general sense, we're all priests through our baptism because we all offer the sacrifice of our contrite hearts and our lives which take on new meaning when united with the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. For our baptism is a kind of death, a sharing in the cross. Therefore, in the priesthood of believers, we come to share in his resurrection. The priest, the ministerial and ordained priest, however, in a very particular way, acting in the person of Christ, head of his body, offers the one sacrifice of Christ on Calvary by his hands. And this is the essence of the Most Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. The entire Paschal mystery of Christ comes truly present by the power of God at every single Holy Mass. It's what He is doing. Our High Priest offers Himself in the Spirit to the Father and invites us to take part. But the way in which we take part, as head or as member of His mystical body, matters. 
The entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, his suffering, death, and resurrection, and his glorious ascension all become present once more. This one sacrifice is perpetuated as an everlasting memorial. We're going to get into this more next week. Christ does not die again, yet his saving action becomes present once more through the divine and sacred liturgy at the hands of the priest in the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And every single holy mass is celebrated primarily by Jesus Christ, our high priest. In this heavenly banquet and sacrificial meal, there are many who are already living in the perfection of the Trinity. Right? The saints in heaven, whether they're officially canonized or not, are taking part fully, consciously, and actually in the Holy Mass. Likewise, the angels are constantly worshiping God in accord with his desires. When Mass is celebrated publicly, there is more than just the priest present on earth. There may be other ministers, a cantor, an altar server, a reader, or some other members of the lay faithful. And these masses are beautiful because they show us greater sign of the mystical body of Christ gathered to worship God, head and members. However, what if a priest is, uh, is offering mass privately? And this has happened throughout the history of the church. Priests are encouraged to offer mass daily, and they are therefore unable to have the faithful present every time they offer mass. And this is colloquially known as a private mass or masa privata. But the name is really misleading because no mass is private. At every single mass, Jesus Christ is offering himself eternally to the Father in the power and working of the Holy Spirit. And the angels and the saints are actively taking part in this perfect worship. Heaven and earth meet. The imminent and the transcendent kiss. So whether the faithful are present or not, the holy mass is the holy mass. And at the risk of treading on the same ground as session one, I think it's worth looking at the efficacy and aims of the Holy Mass again. Since the very first Eucharist at the Last Supper, Jesus instituted the Holy Eucharist as a memorial of his suffering and death, by which the graces of the cross would flow to the entire world even 2,000 years later. For in the Mass, the cross becomes truly present once more, and the blood of Christ flows to purify the world. The Mass is a true sacrifice that is offered to God alone. It's a sacrifice offered for the praise and adoration of our triune God in thanksgiving. And the Mass is also offered um, for impetration, that is to, to lay our requests for the world before God. The Mass is also a propitiatory sacrifice because it's the representation of the cross. In other words, what that, that propitiation means is the blood of Christ flowing from the cross is offered in expiation for the sins of mankind. It washes clean uh, the sins of mankind. And our high priest standing once again in the breach as our mediator by the hands of the ordained priest is offering his prayer on our behalf to God of praise, adoration, thanksgiving, propitiation, and imputation. Every single mass is therefore infinitely efficacious and good, whether the faithful are present or not. Therefore, Mass is never really private. It's always crowded. We just do not yet have eyes to see this glorious reality. All right, so now that we've covered the mystical body of Christ theology, it's time to get into the Liturgy of the Word. The Liturgy of the Word begins after the Collect with the first reading. Readings from sacred scripture are part of every holy mass. 
Each Mass, there is a first reading, a responsorial psalm, and a reading from the Gospels. On Sundays, solemnities, and some feast days, there's also a second reading. Now, generally, the first reading is taken from the Old Testament. During the Easter season, which is from Easter through Pentecost, the first reading is taken from the New Testament. After that comes the responsorial psalm. And these come generally from the 150 psalms, except for five times a year in the three-year cycle of readings. There's a canticle from Exodus and Isaiah at Easter Vigil. Uh, the Magnificat in the Gospel of Luke on Gaudete Sunday in year B, and Daniel chapter 3 on Trinity Sunday in year A. By the way, in the lectionary, uh, which is the part of the Roman Missal that contains the readings for Mass, there's a two-year cycle for daily readings and a three-year cycle for Sunday readings. When I was growing up, I heard that we get through the entire Bible in three years. Maybe you've heard that too. Uh, and that's not quite true, not, not by a long shot. The Sunday and weekday lectionaries contain 13.5% uh, of the Old Testament, not counting the Psalms. So again, that's 13.5% of the Old Testament, 54.9% of the non-gospel New Testament, 89.8% of the Gospels, and 71.5% of the entire New Testament. So quite a bit of scripture. And the Second Vatican Council called for a greatly increased amount of readings. In paragraph 35 of Sacrosanctum Concilium, they stated, In the sacred rites, a more abundant and more varied and more appropriate selection of readings from sacred scripture is to be restored. Now, for Sundays, vigils, and major feasts, the amount of uh, scripture read directly in the Tridentine liturgy, which had an epistle and a gradual and a gospel reading, um, was 22% of the gospels. Uh, compare that to 89.8% of the gospels now. 11% of the New Testament epistles, as compared to 59 or 54.9% now. And 0.8% of the Old Testament, as compared to 13.5%. Uh, so quite a bit more scripture now. Uh, the responsorial psalm is meant to be responsorial, of course. So a large part of actual participation in the mass means actually singing the, the mass, right? The response. If you can sing, sing loudly. If you don't think you can sing, sing even louder. Now, by adding a second reading on Sundays and solemnities, uh, we're able to get through much more of the story of salvation history over the three-year cycle. But Holy Mother Church also desires to show us more explicitly the intricate link between the Old and the New Testaments, so that it's laid out in a specific arrangement for a reason. Now, before the Gospel, outside of Lent, uh, the Alleluia and the accompanying verse related to the Gospel of the day are chanted. And during Lent, a traditional alternative acclamation is made, which is some variation of praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before this gospel acclamation, there are occasionally sequences. Uh, these are the 11th century Victime Pascali Laudes, which is done on Easter, the 12th century Veni Sancti Spiritus for Pentecost, uh, the 13th century Lauda Zion Salvatorum, which is written by St. Thomas Aquinas for Corpus Christi. Uh, and perhaps you've heard of that. It's part of it goes uh, the Pange Lingua. Uh, Pange Lingua Gloria Hosting. 
Besides being done at Corpus Christi, that one's also done usually at Holy Thursday, usually after the Holy uh, Thursday liturgy on the way to the altar of repose, they'll sing the Pange Lingua with all the verses, including the uh, final verses, which is the Tantum Ergo. Tantum Ergo Sacramentum that's the tune that most people know anyway. There's another one that matches the uh, the full Pange Lingua, because the Pange Lingua is Pange Lingua Gloriosi. So the Tantum Ergo is Tantum Ergo Sacramentum Venere etc. Um, beautiful, beautiful hymns written by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century. So uh, these are these are old sequences that have been done, um, not the 14th century, the 13th century, 13th century. Anyway, um, the ones on Easter and Pentecost are not optional in the current Missal. And there's also the optional sequence, which is the Stabat Mater for Our Lady of Sorrows. Um, <clears throat> that's the... Uh, that was that was written in 1727, so a little bit newer, um, and that is done a lot of the times at the Stations of the Cross as well. That would be at the Cross or Station Keeping. Uh, that one goes, And the Cross or Station Keeping Stood the mournful mother weeping Close to Jesus to the last through her heart his sorrow sharing, all his bitter anguish bearing. Now at length a sword has passed. And there's a, a bunch of verses to that. Um, but, but very, very beautiful, very heart-wrenching um, hymn to Our Lady. And that's why it's on Our Lady of Sorrows. And then there's also the Dies Irae, which was done for All Souls Day and Requiem Masses. Um, in the Tridentine Liturgy, it's now moved to the Liturgy of the Hours as of 1970, but a very beautiful uh, chant uh, sequence that is uh, kind of intense, um, but but beautiful, talking about the Day of Judgment. <laughs> so uh, highly worth checking that out. It's also got a really fun tune. Um, how does it go? It goes... Die sire, die sila, sovet seclum in favila. And it, it keeps going. There's, I, I think there's like 20 verses. It's definitely pretty intense. I mean, the lyrics are, die sile, die sila is the day of wrath. That day will break up the world into ash. And this melody has been around for a while. It's been around for, you know, 700 years. It was used in The Lion King, is used in The Shining. Um, that same melody was used in Star Wars A New Hope, It's a Wonderful Life, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's it, it's all over the place. So Dies Irae, definitely worth checking out on YouTube. Um, at any rate, we move on to the gospel. We're seated for the readings, but we stand up for the gospel acclamation and the gospel. Why? Well, because it's the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear the gospel proclaimed by the deacon or the priest, then we're hearing the words of our blessed Lord. And so we stand out of respect, out of reverence, and out of joy. And the readings 
used to only be proclaimed by the priest at the altar in Latin. Now they're proclaimed at an ambo or a lectern. The Old and New Testament readings in the psalm, interestingly, were sort of given to the laity as an ordinary ministry. Uh, This is a change from the pre-1970 liturgies and is uh, a reform or a development. The uh, lessons, as they used to be called, were only offered by the priest. Now they're proclaimed by the people to the people in the vernacular. Now, the gospel, however, is never to be read by the laity, even an instituted lector. The gospel belongs, so to speak, to the deacon. Even at a papal mass, a deacon will proclaim the gospel. This is symbolized at the diaconal ordination when the man being ordained is given a book of the Gospels. It's also why the deacon processes up to the altar at the beginning of Mass with the book of the Gospels held high. And so why does it matter that the readings are proclaimed or offered quietly in Latin? Well, following the authentic developments of the liturgical movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was an understanding brought to the foreground called liturgical actualization. When the readings are proclaimed at Mass, those sacred realities become present to us in a mystical way. When we hear of the Hebrews crossing dry shot across the Red Sea in the Exodus, we are there with them. By the power of Almighty God, the liturgy comes alive in a mysterious way, and the fabric of space and time are folded in upon themselves. So the readings are not mere recollections, nor mere instruction. The antiphons, the prayers of the Mass, and especially the proclaimed readings make the holy mysteries present to us and us present to them in a way that escapes our understanding. As the Second Vatican Council teaches, quoting the Council of Trent, The church has never failed to come together to celebrate the Paschal mystery, reading those things which were in all the scriptures concerning him, celebrating the Eucharist in which, and here quoting Trent, the victory and triumph of his death are again made present, and at the same time giving thanks to God for his unspeakable gift in Christ Jesus in praise of his glory through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the sacred mystery of liturgical actualization is rendered more intelligible to our senses by having the readings proclaimed in the vernacular in a way that we can all hear and understand. Thus, reading at Mass is a true ministry. It's an action of our High Priest Jesus Christ working through the reader. As the general instruction of the Roman Missal says in paragraph 29, when the sacred scriptures are read in the church, God himself speaks to his people. And Christ, present in his own word, proclaims the gospel. Since the time of the Council of Trent, uh, the sermon or the homily was envisioned as taking place after the gospel, at least on Sundays and holy days, and this was not happening everywhere. And so the Second Vatican Council ordered that these prescriptions of Trent actually come to fruition. The general instruction of the Roman Missal says this of the homily, says, although in the readings from sacred scripture, God's word is addressed to all people of every era and is understandable to them. Nevertheless, a fuller understanding and a greater effectiveness of the word is fostered by a living commentary on the word, that is the homily, as part of the liturgical action. I have personally found that the best homilies are at the same time sufficient in depth, personally challenging, Uh, In other words, difficult to hear sometimes, um, accessible, and focused on leading us towards the next part of the Mass, the sacrifice and the altar. 
And there's more to say on the homily, but I'm going to leave that for another class. Um, After the homily, on Sundays, solemnities, and special occasions, we profess our faith with either the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. And these creedal statements are so very important in the life of the church. The Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, to use the full name, is the fruit of the first two ecumenical councils in the 4th century, which safeguarded the church against various heresies. The creed is also something we profess together as head and members of the body of Christ in response to the word of God that was proclaimed in the readings and expounded in the homily. Dr. Scott Hahn, in his excellent book on the creed, refers to the profession in this way. He says, speaking in his book, I want to show that creeds don't just make you who you are and I who I am. They make us who we are. They are one of the ordinary means God uses to unite his people. God takes wayward tribes and makes them a nation. And more than that, a family. He takes all the lawless, rebellious nations of the earth and makes them a church. And more than that, his own body. It begins with that cry from the heart. I believe. Dr. Hahn also teaches us that the profession of the creed is to the liturgy of the word what the reception of Holy Communion is to the liturgy of the Eucharist. I find this so fruitful to contemplate before reciting the creed. So how can we pray the creed better? Well, first, if you don't know what's being professed, then ask questions and find the right answers. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has an entire section devoted to the walking through the creed line by line. Second, uh, don't just say it. Really pray it. Savor every word and feel the weight of the history of the church, the passionate preaching of the saints who defended each word, and the power of the focal points of Jesus Christ and the Blessed Trinity. Finally, in the liturgy of the word is the prayers of the faithful or the universal prayer. In which standing, the people respond in a certain way to the word of God, says the general instruction in the remissal, which they have welcomed in faith and exercising the office of their baptismal priesthood, offer prayers to God for the salvation of all. In these prayers, the church asks us to pray for four things, for the needs of the church, for public authorities and the salvation of the whole world, for those burdened by any kind of difficulty and for the local community. These prayers are directed by the priest and the intentions are announced by the deacon. If a deacon isn't present, the priest can do so, or a cantor, lector, or one of the lay faithful are allowed to do so by the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Okay, that's it for the Liturgy of the Word. There's far more to say. I could have spent an entire hour, for example, just commenting on the formatting of the lectionary. I could have spent another hour talking about which translation of sacred scripture I think would be more appropriate than the New American Bible. Um, Well, I'm not going to go an hour into it, but I would really love us to be using the English Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But this series... All five sessions is an introduction to whet our appetite. If any questions came up in your mind today during the presentation and you want to know more or you have a comment or a question or there's some confusion, please send them to willwritecatholic at gmail.com or you can reply on the substack and I will happily answer them.
I love getting questions about the faith and talking about it. Uh, it's what I, I love to do. So please, please let me know. And uh, I really hope to see you next week for the session on the liturgy of the Eucharist. I'm so excited to share with you the astounding implications of liturgical actualization as it relates to the liturgy of the Eucharist. The mystery and beauty of it is breathtaking. So until next week, may God bless us and keep us seeking evermore after his heart. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.